Section 18 of The Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott Second Part Methodology of Pure Practical Reason This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon By the methodology of pure practical reason, we are not to understand the mode of proceeding with pure practical principles, whether in study or in exposition, with a view to a scientific knowledge of them, which alone is what is properly called method elsewhere in theoretical philosophy. For popular knowledge requires a manner, science a method, that is, a process according to principles of reason by which alone the manifold of any branch of knowledge can become a system. On the contrary, by this methodology is understood the mode in which we can give the laws of pure practical reason access to the human mind and influence on its maxims, that is, by which we can make the objectively practical reason subjectively practical also. Now, it is clear enough that those determining principles of the will, which alone make maxims properly moral and give them a moral worth, namely, the direct conception of the law, and the objective necessity of obeying it as our duty, must be regarded as the proper springs of actions, since otherwise legality of actions might be produced, but not morality of character. But it is not so clear. On the contrary, it must at first sight seem to everyone very improbable that even subjectively that exhibition of pure virtue can have more power over the human mind and supply a far stronger spring even for effecting that legality of actions, and can produce more powerful resolutions to prefer the law, from pure respect for it, to every other consideration, than all the deceptive allurements of pleasure, or of all that may be reckoned as happiness, or even than all threatenings of pain and misfortune. Nevertheless, this is actually the case, and if human nature were not so constituted, no mode of presenting the law by roundabout ways and indirect recommendations would ever produce morality of character. All would be simple hypocrisy. The law would be hated, or at least despised, while it was followed for the sake of one's own advantage. The letter of the law, legality, would be found in our actions, but not the spirit of it in our minds, morality and as with all our efforts we could not quite free ourselves from reason in our judgment, we must inevitably appear in our own eyes worthless, depraved men, even though we should seek to compensate ourselves for this mortification before the inner tribunal, by enjoying the pleasure that a supposed natural or divine law might be imagined to have connected with it a sort of police machinery, regulating its operations by what was done without troubling itself about the motives for doing it. It cannot indeed be denied that in order to bring an uncultivated or degraded mind into the track of moral goodness, some preparatory guidance is necessary, to attract it by a view of its own advantage, or to alarm it by fear of loss. But as soon as this mechanical work, these leading strings, have produced some effect, then we must bring before the mind the pure moral motive, which, not only because it is the only one that can be the foundation of a character, 
a practically consistent habit of mind with unchangeable maxims, but also because it teaches a man to feel his own dignity, gives the mind a power unexpected even by himself, to tear himself from all sensible attachments so far as they would fain have the rule, and to find a rich compensation for the sacrifice he offers in the independence of his rational nature and the greatness of soul to which he sees that he is destined. We will therefore show, by such observations as every one can make, that this property of our minds, this receptivity for a pure moral interest, and consequently the moving force of the pure conception of virtue, when it is properly applied to the human heart, is the most powerful spring, and, when a continued and punctual observance of moral maxims is in question, the only spring of good conduct. It must, however, be remembered that if these observations only prove the reality of such a feeling, but do not show any moral improvement brought about by it, this is no argument against the only method that exists of making the objectively practical laws of pure reason subjectively practical, through the mere force of the conception of duty. Nor does it prove that this method is a vain delusion. For, as it has never yet come into vogue, experience can say nothing of its results. One can only ask for proofs of the receptivity for such springs, and these I will now briefly present and then sketch the method of founding and cultivating genuine moral dispositions. When we attend to the course of conversation in mixed companies, consisting not merely of learned persons and subtle reasoners, but also of men of business, or of women, we observe that, besides storytelling and jesting, another kind of entertainment finds a place in them, namely argument. For stories, if they are to have novelty and interest, are soon exhausted, and jesting is likely to become insipid. Now, of all argument, there is none in which persons are more ready to join who find any other subtle discussion tedious, none that brings more liveliness into the company, than that which concerns the moral worth of this or that action by which the character of some person is to be made out. Persons, to whom in other cases anything subtle and speculative in theoretical questions is dry and irksome, presently join in when the question is to make out the moral import of a good or bad action that has been related, and they display an exactness, a refinement, a subtlety, in excogitating everything that can lessen the purity of purpose, and consequently the degree of virtue in it, which we do not expect from them in any other kind of speculation." In these criticisms, persons who are passing judgment on others often reveal their own character. Some, in exercising their judicial office, especially upon the dead, seem inclined chiefly to defend the goodness that is related of this or that deed against all injurious charges of insincerity, and ultimately to defend the whole moral worth of the person against the reproach of dissimulation and secret wickedness. Others, on the contrary, turn their thoughts more upon attacking this worth by accusation and fault-finding. We cannot always, however, attribute to these latter the intention of arguing away virtue altogether out of all human examples in order to make it an empty name. Often, on the contrary, it is only well-meant strictness in determining the true moral import of actions according to an uncompromising law. Comparison with such a law, instead of with examples, lowers self-conceit in moral matters very much, and not merely teaches humility, but makes everyone feel it when he examines himself closely. 
Nevertheless, we can for the most part observe, in those who defend the purity of purpose in giving examples, that where there is the presumption of uprightness, they are anxious to remove even the least spot, lest, if all examples had their truthfulness disputed, and if the purity of all human virtue were denied, it might in the end be regarded as a mere phantom, and so all effort to attain it be made light of as vain affectation and elusive conceit. I do not know why the educators of youth have not long since made use of this propensity of reason to enter with pleasure upon the most subtle examination of the practical questions that are thrown up, and why they have not, after first laying the foundation of a purely moral catechism, searched through the biographies of ancient and modern times with a view of having at hand instances of the duties laid down in which, especially by comparison of similar actions under different circumstances, they might exercise the critical judgment of their scholars in remarking their greater or less moral significance. This is a thing in which they would find that even early youth, which is still unripe for speculation of other kinds, would soon become very acute and not a little interested, because it feels the progress of its faculty of judgment, and, what is most important, they could hope with confidence that the frequent practice of knowing and approving good conduct in all its purity, and, on the other hand, of remarking with regret or contempt the least deviation from it, although it may be pursued only as a sport in which children may compete with one another, yet will leave a lasting impression of esteem on the one hand and disgust on the other, and so, by the mere habit of looking on such actions as deserving approval or blame, a good foundation would be laid for uprightness in the future course of life. Only I wish they would spare them the example of so-called noble, supermeritorious actions, in which our sentimental books so much abound, and would refer all to duty merely, and to the worth that a man can and must give himself in his own eyes by the consciousness of not having transgressed it, since whatever runs up into empty wishes and longings after inaccessible perfection produces mere heroes of romance, who, while they pique themselves on their feeling for transcendent greatness, release themselves in return from the observance of common and everyday obligations, which then seem to them petty and insignificant. Footnote. It is quite proper to extol actions that display a great, unselfish, sympathizing mind or humanity, but in this case we must fix attention not so much on the elevation of soul, which is very fleeting and transitory, as on the subjection of the heart to duty, from which a more enduring impression may be expected, because this implies principle, whereas the former only implies ebullitions, one need only reflect a little, and he will always find a debt that he has by some means incurred towards the human race. Even if it were only this, by the inequality of men in the civil constitution, enjoys advantages on account of which others must be the more in want, which will prevent the thought of duty from being repressed by the self-complacent imagination of merit. End footnote. But if it is asked... What, then, is really pure morality, by which, as a touchstone, we must test the moral significance of every action? Then I must admit that it is only philosophers that can make the decision of this question doubtful, for to common sense it has been decided long ago, 
not indeed by abstract general formulae, but by habitual use, like the distinction between the right and left hand. We will then point out the criterion of pure virtue in an example first, and, imagining that it is set before a boy of, say, ten years old, for his judgment, we will see whether he would necessarily judge so of himself without being guided by his teacher. Tell him the history of an honest man whom men want to persuade to join the calumniators of an innocent and powerless person, say Anne Boleyn, accused by Henry VIII of England. He has offered advantages, great gifts, or high rank. He rejects them. This will excite mere approbation and applause in the mind of the hearer. Now begins the threatening of loss. Amongst these traducers are his best friends, who now renounce his friendship, near kinsfolk who threaten to disinherit him, he being without fortune, powerful persons who can persecute and harass him in all places and circumstances, a prince who threatens him with loss of freedom, yea, loss of life, then to fill the measure of suffering, and that he may feel the pain that only the morally good heart can feel very deeply, let us conceive his family threatened with extreme distress and want, entreating him to yield, conceive himself, though upright, yet with feelings not hard or insensible, either to compassion or to his own distress. Conceive him, I say, at the moment when he wishes that he had never lived to see the day that exposed him to such unutterable anguish, yet remaining true to his uprightness of purpose, without wavering or even doubting. Then will my youthful hearer be raised gradually from mere approval to admiration, from that to amazement, and finally to the greatest veneration, and a lively wish that he himself could be such a man, though certainly not in such circumstances. Yet virtue is here worth so much only because it costs so much not because it brings any profit. All the admiration, and even the endeavour to resemble this character, rest wholly on the purity of the moral principle, which can only be strikingly shown by removing from the springs of action everything that man may regard as part of happiness. Morality, then, must have the more power over the human heart the more purely it is exhibited. Whence it follows that, if the law of morality and the image of holiness and virtue are to exercise any influence at all on our souls, they can do so only so far as they are laid to heart in their purity as modus, unmixed with any view to prosperity, for it is in suffering that they display themselves most nobly. Now that whose removal strengthens the effect of a moving force must have been a hindrance, consequently every admixture of modus taken from our own happiness is a hindrance to the influence of the moral law on the heart. I affirm further that even in that admired action, if the motive from which it was done was a high regard for duty, then it is just this respect for the law that has the greatest influence on the mind of the spectator, not any pretension to a supposed inward greatness of mind or noble meritorious sentiments. Consequently, duty, not merit, must have not only the most definite, but, when it is represented, in the true light of its inviolability, the most penetrating influence on the mind. It is more necessary than ever to direct attention to this method in our times, when men hope to produce more effect on the mind with soft, tender feelings, or high-flown, puffing-up pretensions, 
which rather wither the heart than strengthen it, than by a plain and earnest representation of duty, which is more suited to human imperfection and to progress in goodness. To set before children as a pattern actions that are called noble, magnanimous, meritorious, with the notion of captivating them by infusing enthusiasm for such actions, is to defeat our end. For, as they are still so backward in the observance of the commonest duty, and even in the correct estimation of it, this means simply to make them fantastical romances betimes. But, even with the instructed and experienced part of mankind, this supposed spring has, if not an injurious, at least no genuine moral effect on the heart, which, however, is what it was desired to produce. All feelings, especially those that are to produce unwanted exertions, must accomplish their effect at the moment they are at their height and before the calm down. Otherwise they affect nothing. For as there was nothing to strengthen the heart but only to excite it, it naturally returns to its normal moderate tone, and thus falls back into its previous languor. Principles must be built on conceptions. On any other basis there can only be paroxysms, which can give the person no moral worth, nay, not even confidence in himself, without which the highest good in man, consciousness of the morality of his mind and character, cannot exist. Now, if these conceptions are to become subjectively practical, we must not rest satisfied with admiring the objective law of morality, and esteeming it highly in reference to humanity, but we must consider the conception of it in relation to man as an individual, and then this law appears in a form indeed that is highly deserving of respect, but not so pleasant as if it belonged to the element to which he is naturally accustomed but, on the contrary, as often compelling him to quit this element, not without self-denial, and to betake himself to a higher, in which he can only maintain himself with trouble, and with unceasing apprehension of a relapse. In a word, the moral law demands obedience, from duty, not from predilection, which cannot, and ought not, to be presupposed at all. Let us now see, in an example, whether the conception of an action, as a noble and magnanimous one, has more subjective moving power than if the action is conceived merely as duty in relation to the solemn law of morality. The action by which a man endeavours, at the greatest peril of life, to rescue people from shipwreck, at last losing his life in the attempt, is reckoned on one side as duty, but on the other, and for the most part, as a meritorious action." but our esteem for it is much weakened by the notion of duty to himself, which seems in this case to be somewhat infringed. More decisive is the magnanimous sacrifice of life for the safety of one's country. And yet there still remains some scruple whether it is a perfect duty to devote one's self to this purpose spontaneously and unbidden, and the action has not in itself the full force of a pattern and impulse to imitation but, if an indispensable duty be in question, the transgression of which violates the moral law itself, and without regard to the welfare of mankind, and as it were tramples on its holiness, such as are usually called duties to God, because in Him we conceive the ideal of holiness in substance, then we give our most perfect esteem to the pursuit of it as the sacrifice of all that can have any value for the dearest inclinations, and we find our souls strengthened and elevated by such an example, 
when we convince ourselves by contemplation of it that human nature is capable of so great an elevation above every motive that nature can oppose to it juvenal describes such an example in a climax which makes the reader feel vividly the force of the spring that is contained in the pure law of duty as duty esto bonus miles tuto bonus arbiter idem integer ambigue si quando citabere testis in certa querei valares licet imperet utsis falsus et ad moto dictet perioria tauro summum crede nefas animam prefere pudori et propter vitam vivendi perdere causas footnote juvenal satire be you a good soldier a faithful tutor an uncorrupted umpire also if you are summoned as a witness in a doubtful and uncertain thing though phalaris should command that you should be false and should dictate perjuries with the bull brought to you believe it the highest impiety to prefer life to reputation and for the sake of life to lose the causes of living End footnote. when we can bring any flattering thought of merit into our action then the motive is already somewhat alloyed with self-love and has therefore some assistance from the side of the sensibility but to postpone everything to the holiness of duty alone and to be conscious that we can because our own reason recognizes this as its command and says that we ought to do it this is as it were to raise ourselves altogether above the world of sense and there is inseparably involved in the same a consciousness of the law as a spring of a faculty that controls the sensibility and although this is not always attended with effect yet frequent engagement with this spring and the at first minor attempts at using it give hope that this effect may be wrought and that by degrees the greatest and that a purely moral interest in it may be produced in us the method then takes the following course at first we are only concerned to make the judging of actions by moral laws a natural employment accompanying all our own free actions as well as the observation of those of others and to make it as it were a habit and to sharpen this judgment asking first whether the action conforms objectively to the moral law and to what law and we distinguish the law that merely furnishes a principle of obligation from that which is really obligatory leges obligandi a legibus obligantibus as for instance the law of what men's wants require from me as contrasted with that which their rights demand the latter of which prescribes essential the former only non-essential duties and thus we teach how to distinguish different kinds of duties which meet in the same action the other point to which attention must be directed is the question whether the action was also subjectively done for the sake of the moral law so that it not only is morally correct as a deed but also by the maxim from which it is done has moral worth as a disposition now there is no doubt that this practice and the resulting culture of our reason in judging merely of the practical must gradually produce a certain interest even in the law of reason and consequently in morally good actions for we ultimately take a liking for a thing the contemplation of which makes us feel that the use of our cognitive faculties is extended and this extension is especially furthered by that in which we find moral correctness 
since it is only in such an order of things that reason, with its faculty of determining a priori on principle what ought to be done, can find satisfaction. An observer of nature takes liking at last to objects that at first offended his senses, when he discovers in them the great adaptation of their organization to design, so that his reason finds food in its contemplation. So Leibniz spared an insect that he had carefully examined with the microscope and replaced it on its leaf, because he had found himself instructed by the view of it, and had, as it were, received a benefit from it. But this employment of the faculty of judgment, which makes us feel our own cognitive powers, is not yet the interest in actions and in their morality itself. It merely causes us to take pleasure in engaging in such criticism, and it gives to virtue, or the disposition that conforms to moral laws, a form of beauty, which is admired, but not on that account sought after. Laudatur et alget. As everything, the contemplation of which produces a consciousness of the harmony of our powers of conception, and in which we feel the whole of our faculty of knowledge, understanding and imagination, strengthened, produces a satisfaction which may also be communicated to others, while nevertheless the existence of the object remains indifferent to us, being only regarded as the occasion of our becoming aware of the capacities in us which are elevated above mere animal nature. Now, however, the second exercise comes in, the living exhibition of morality of character by examples, in which attention is directed to purity of will, first only as a negative perfection, in so far as, in an action done from duty, no motives of inclination have any influence in determining it. By this the pupil's attention is fixed upon the consciousness of his freedom, and although this renunciation at first excites a feeling of pain, nevertheless, by its withdrawing the pupil from the constraint of even real wants, there is proclaimed to him at the same time a deliverance from the manifold dissatisfaction in which all these wants entangle him, and the mind is made capable of receiving the sensation of satisfaction from other sources. The heart is freed and lightened of a burden that always secretly presses on it, when instances of pure moral resolution reveal to the man an inner faculty of which otherwise he has no right knowledge, the inward freedom to release himself from the boisterous importunity of inclinations, to such a degree that none of them, not even the dearest, shall have any influence on a resolution for which we are now to employ our reason. Suppose a case where I alone know that the wrong is on my side, and although a free confession of it and the offer of satisfaction are so strongly opposed by vanity, selfishness, and even an otherwise not illegitimate antipathy to the man whose rights are impaired by me, I am nevertheless able to discard all these considerations. In this there is implied consciousness of independence on inclinations and circumstances, and of the possibility of being sufficient for myself, which is salutary to me in general for other purposes also. And now the law of duty in consequence of the positive worth which obedience to it makes us feel, finds easier access through the respect for ourselves in the consciousness of our freedom. When this is well established, when a man dreads nothing more than to find himself on self-examination, worthless and contemptible in his own eyes, then every good moral disposition can be grafted on it, because this is the best, nay, the only guard that can keep off from the mind the pressure of ignoble, 
and corrupting motives. I have only intended to point out the most general maxims of the methodology of moral cultivation and exercise. As the manifold variety of duties requires special rules for each kind, and this would be a prolix affair, I shall be readily excused if in a work like this, which is only preliminary, I content myself with these outlines. Conclusion Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the oftener and the more steadily we reflect on them. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. I have not to search for them and conjecture them as though they were veiled in darkness or were in the transcendent region beyond my horizon. I see them before me and connect them directly with the consciousness of my existence. The former begins from the place I occupy in the external world of sense, and enlarges my connection therein to an unbounded extent with worlds upon worlds and systems of systems, and moreover into limitless times of their periodic motion, its beginning and continuance. The second begins from my invisible self, my personality, and exhibits me in a world which has true infinity but which is traceable only by the understanding, and with which I discern that I am not in a merely contingent, but in a universal and necessary connection, as I am also thereby with all those visible worlds. The former view of a countless multitude of worlds annihilates, as it were, my importance as an animal creature, which, after it has been for a short time provided with vital power, one knows not how, must again give back the matter of which it was formed to the planet it inhabits, a mere speck in the universe. The second, on the contrary, infinitely elevates my worth as an intelligence by my personality, in which the moral law reveals to me a life independent of animality, and even of the whole sensible world, at least so far as may be inferred from the destination assigned to my existence by this law a destination not restricted to conditions and limits of this life, but reaching into the infinite. But, though admiration and respect may excite to inquiry, they cannot supply the want of it. What, then, is to be done in order to enter on this in a useful manner, and one adapted to the loftiness of the subject? Examples may serve in this as a warning, and also for imitation." The contemplation of the world began from the noblest spectacle that the human senses present to us, and that our understanding can bear to follow in their vast reach, and it ended in astrology. Morality began with the noblest attribute of human nature, the development and cultivation of which give a prospect of infinite utility, and ended in fanaticism or superstition. So it is with all crude attempts where the principal part of the business depends on the use of reason, a use which does not come of itself like the use of the feet by frequent exercise, especially when attributes are in question which cannot be directly exhibited in common experience. But after the maxim had come into vogue, though late, to examine carefully beforehand all the steps that reason proposes to take, and not to let it proceed otherwise than in the track of a previously well-considered method. Then the study of the structure of the universe took quite a different direction, and thereby attained an incomparably happier result. The fall of a stone, the motion of a sling, 
resolved into their elements and the forces that are manifested in them, and treated mathematically, produced at last that clear and henceforward unchangeable insight into the system of the world which, as observation is continued, may hope always to extend itself, but need never fear to be compelled to retreat. This example may suggest to us to enter on the same path in treating of the moral capacities of our nature, and may give us hope of a like good result. We have at hand the instances of the moral judgment of reason. By analysing these into their elementary conceptions, and in default of mathematics adopting a process similar to that of chemistry, the separation of the empirical from the rational elements that may be found in them, by repeated experiments on common sense, we may exhibit both pure and learn with certainty what each part can accomplish of itself, so as to prevent on the one hand the errors of a still crude untrained judgment, and on the other hand, what is far more necessary, the extravagances of genius, by which, as by the adepts of the philosopher's stone, without any methodical study or knowledge of nature, visionary treasures are promised, and the true are thrown away. In one word, science, critically undertaken and methodically directed, is the narrow gate that leads to the true doctrine of practical wisdom, if we understand by this not merely what one ought to do, but what ought to serve teachers as a guide to construct well and clearly the road to wisdom which everyone should travel, and to secure others from going astray. Philosophy must always continue to be the guardian of this science, and although the public does not take any interest in its subtle investigations, it must take an interest in the resulting doctrines, which such an examination first puts in a clear light. End of section 18 End of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott